I read, or maybe you've heard this before, uh, of the three priests or the three ministers or the three clergy who were traveling together in a railway compartment, uh, going to some conference together. They didn't really know each other that well, and they started speaking to and talking to each other, and they discovered that although they'd heard many confessions themselves, they'd never really confessed to other people. So they thought, well, it would be a good thing for us to try that then. So they were a bit uh, uncertain what to say, but anyway, after a bit of persuasion, the first guy went ahead and he said, well, you know, uh, brothers, I must confess that I, I, have, I have taken stuff out of the, out of the offering, out of the, what's been given on a, on a Sunday. Of course, there was in drawing of breath, and oh, dear, dear, dear. Well, anyway, if you've confessed it, we'll, we'll give you absolution, we'll forgive you, and what about you then? They said the second one, they said, oh, I don't want to say anything, but you know, in my, in my um, denomination, it's, it's real wine. And uh, after, after the communion, I, I have this tendency just to finish the whole bottle. <laughs> and I think I've got a problem, really. But uh, I said, oh, well, okay, brother, but we'll pray for you. And so what about you, they said to the third one. He said, I don't know really what to say, but I think my biggest advice is I just can't keep a secret. So you can imagine the atmosphere in the carriage in the, around the table there as they're sharing their coffee. But anyway, there you have it. Not that you didn't know it already, but that's just a silly illustration perhaps of the fact that pastors, priests, ministers, popes, elders, whoever or whatever we are, we are all sinful. We are all sinful. And so we shouldn't put our faith in that sense in our pastors or our priests because we can't expect another sinful human being to be able to do for us really only what God can do. Can't bring us back to God, can't give us forgiveness. We need a perfect priest to do that. And that's the great message of this passage that Sean has just read to us this morning. In fact, it's the great message of the whole of the letter to the Hebrews. It's exactly this. We do have a great high priest, and his name is Jesus, and that's why I'm calling this this morning, Jesus is the greatest of all. We don't need anybody else. Last Sunday evening, if you were in church, or perhaps you listened online, Owen read the whole of the letter to the Hebrews to us. It was a great experience just to sit here and listen to the, the Word of God being uh, read like that in one sitting. Maybe you watched it online. And so I thought really, reflecting on this Sunday... Uh, on the back of that, perhaps it would be good just to follow up briefly with a little more in-depth look at one of the central themes of the book, which Owen, of course, touched on as he was going through those verses last Sunday night. The good news that Jesus is our great high priest. The great good news that Jesus is our great high priest. We've already sung really well about it in that second song, haven't we? Now, why is it such good news for you and me this morning in Cardiff in February 2023 that we have a great high priest. I mean, doesn't the language sound a little archaic, a bit distant, a bit unreal? Well, the reason is, if you're listening to that uh, reading Sean just gave us, those verses have been telling us that there's no hiding place for people like you and me. 
in Cardiff in February 2023. Just listen. There's no place to hide, verse 13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Isn't that frightening? Can you imagine that? Nothing hidden from God's all-knowing gaze. All your thoughts, all your actions, all your words, all your motives, all that interior secret life that not even perhaps your nearest and dearest knows about, everything uncovered and laid bare. It's as though a video of our, of our lives and our inner life is, is exposed there. Well, how would you feel? I'd want the, the ground to open up and swallow me. And it's all open and laid bare before the eyes of God to whom we must give an account. There's no place to hide. We've just read here that the Word of God is alive and active. It penetrates our deepest and darkest consciousness. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. So we're without excuse. We have broken God's law in thought and word and deed. We haven't loved as we should have loved. We are guilty. And we all stand condemned in the court of God's justice. We can run, but we can't hide. There's no place to hide. So that's why these words, closing this chapter 4, are such good news. Listen, everything is uncovered, laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. But we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven. In other words, in the court of God, we have an advocate, we have a representative, we have a, a defense lawyer, we have someone who is wonderfully qualified and amazingly willing to speak in our defense, to stand for us, to represent us. He is Jesus, the Son of God. So, no place to hide, no, but thankfully, gratefully, the news is we have no ordinary priest to help us. No ordinary priest. Just let's consider uh, from this passage what are the qualities then of this priest. Remember we said that the writer's concern is to demonstrate how superior Jesus Christ is from all those who've gone before. That's what the whole letter is about. Jesus is always better. He's the greatest. And these few verses that we've read this morning, they summarize at least in two ways how much better Jesus is than all that's gone before. First of all, the writer says he's superior in his person. He is Jesus, the Son of God. He is divine. He is God come in the flesh. The Jews, of course, they depended on their, their high priest. He was the man who represented them to God. He was the man who prayed for them before God. He was the man who offered their, their blood sacrifices that atoned for their sins. The high priest, he was such an important part of their lives, of their worship, of their relationship with God. But the major problem with the Jewish high priests was that they were human. They needed forgiveness. They were sinners, just like the people they represented. They were prone to failure. But, says the writer, our high priest and, and their high priest is, is superior because he's not just a human high priest. He's the Son of God. He is sinless. He cannot fail. 
He does not need forgiveness. He is perfect. So he's superior in his person. But then he also says here he's superior in his performance. You see, Jesus, because of who he is, has achieved what no human high priest could ever achieve. You see, the high priest's work in the Old Testament was never finished. It was never sufficient. That's why year after year after year, he had to repeat the ceremonies of sacrifice and cleansing and so on. But what Jesus has done stands forever. His is an eternal priesthood. Like that mysterious figure of Melchizedek, who the writer speaks about in the next chapter. He's the source of an eternal salvation for all who trust in him. Jesus did not offer the blood of of goats or bulls, which can never really take away sin. He offered up his own blood, his own precious blood. He gave his own life as a sacrifice for sin on that altar of Calvary's cross. He was, as John tells us, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And because his was a perfect life of obedience and therefore a perfect sacrifice for sin, it doesn't have to be repeated again and again and again. It is eternally effective for all who trust in him. Forgiveness of sins has been finally and completely achieved. It is finished, Jesus cried on the cross. A shout of victory, of supreme achievement, completion. And he was proved to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. And that's what our writer is pointing to here. Therefore, he writes, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven... Jesus just didn't die on the cross or remain in the grave. He was raised from the dead and has ascended into heaven. Jesus, the Son of God. So, Jesus' priestly performance was of an altogether different, higher category than any earthly priest from the Old Testament. They entered just briefly, once a year, into the Holy of Holies, passing through that thick curtain that uh, divided that temporary symbolic space, a holy of holies from the rest of the tabernacle or the temple. In there was the presence of God. But this great high priest, the writer says, has passed through the curtain of the heavens for us after his resurrection from the dead. He has ascended to the right hand of his Father on high. He He has entered not into the holy place made by human hands, but into the reality of the holy place, the reality of the presence of God in heaven, there to appear for you and for me. And there he reigns now as king. But, and this is the glory of of this good news, as our great high priest, he continues his gracious ministry of, of representation, of intercession, of praying for us. He ever lives to pray for us, the writer tells us, to bring our situations, our needs, our concerns before the throne of grace. And so that, finally, is is the third amazing truth that our our writer wants the the readers to grasp here. This is this extraordinary, this uniquely qualified priest, this divine man, Jesus, the Son of God, enthroned in majesty, 
is not a remote, is not a distant, inaccessible figure. He is no distant savior, although he is our great high priest. So no distant savior. Just listen to what he says in verse 15 again. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. How wonderful, brothers and sisters, how wonderful that the God-man who sits on the throne of the universe this morning is also our great high priest who is able to sympathize with us or empathize with us in our weaknesses, in our temptations, in our difficulties, in all the stuff that we face. And how did God the Son get that caring, empathetic heart that reaches out to us, that wants to help us, to comfort us in all our troubles? Well, he got it, of course, by incarnation, the internal word who was in the beginning with God, who made the universe, who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being, who sustains all things by his powerful word, as this writer tells us. He knows what it's like to be human. Listen to the next chapter, chapter 5, verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence, submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, complete, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Listen. Cries, tears, suffering, submission, death. That's our Savior. Our great high priest, Jesus, no distant savior. He, no, not at all. He was totally involved, totally committed to us. And he remains exactly like that. That's his heart's attitude in heaven today. So the one who, who went on earth was hungry, tired, thirsty, sad. The one who knew what it was like to be, to be disappointed, to be deserted, to be betrayed, to be alone, the one who knew poverty and pain, the one who knew what it was like to be tempted, the one who knew what it was, well, who knew what it was like to experience that, that utter darkness, that, that terrible darkness of, of separation, it seems, even from the love or the sense of the love of his Father in heaven, totally alone, abandoned. He knew all that. He is the one who now remembers those experiences and brings them to mind to empathize with us. He knows what we're going through. I like the definition I read this week of empathy. Empathy is your pain in my heart. Your pain in my heart. It's deeper in a sense than sympathy. It's entering into your pain and that's exactly what Jesus does it's my pain in his heart even today whatever i'm facing he understands us harper lee in her famous novel to kill a mockingbird she writes this she says you never really know a man until you understand things from his point of view until you climb into his skin and walk around in it 
And that's exactly what Jesus did. He climbed into our skin and he walked around in it. He's walked in our shoes. He's felt our pain, our loneliness. He's felt our passion. He was tempted in all ways just as we are, yet he did not sin. And because he's walked our way, he is able to help us in all our trials and temptations and difficulties. He's no distant saviour this morning. So what? You might say, so what? It uh, sounds like a lot of theology to me, but so what? What are the practical applications of this teaching this morning, these amazing truths about Jesus being our great high priest? Well, the writer in these verses gives us two. First of all, he says, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Do you profess this faith? That's, that's the writer's concern, really, in this letter. Here's these Jewish Christians. They were going through trials and difficulties, and their faith was being tested. Some were being persecuted now for following Jesus, for a different lifestyle, for a different way to live, for professing faith in Jesus as Messiah, that Jesus is Lord. So, hold firmly, hold firmly to the faith that we profess. So in view of all that the writer has said about ourselves, we have nowhere to hide before this all-seeing God about what Jesus is, that amazingly we have this great high priest who has these amazing qualifications and who despite his deity is no distant saviour, then we should hold firmly to this faith. We must not drift, as he says in a later chapter. We must not let it slip and we should not be ashamed of professing this faith publicly. Humbly, of course, with love, but we shouldn't be ashamed. So let's hold firmly to this faith. And then secondly, he says, and let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. What does he mean? Well, you see, the writer wants to remove from his readers who are going through difficult times, and therefore from us, he wants to remove the thought that we are not accepted, that we cannot come to God. No, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence because we have a great high priest. Now, inevitably, of course, because of our own sense of unworthiness, which is right, and our sense of failure and sinfulness, which is right, of course, we can be doubtful and despondent. We can feel, oh, there's no hope for me. And maybe these Hebrew Christians with their background in law-keeping and uh, doing the right thing and doing it in the right way and all these sorts of rules and regulations, perhaps they still felt that they had to achieve something first to be acceptable before God. No, 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 not so, says the writer. On account of our great high priest, we are accepted in him. And what is more, because of that, we can even approach God with confidence. The God who knows everything about us. And before whom we stand condemned, apart from his love and forgiveness. Of course, not self-confidence. We don't come in self-confidence, but confidence in the all-sufficient and perfect work on our behalf of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So, 
approach the throne of grace with confidence. Come. Don't stay away. Come to the mercy seat. Come to this throne where grace reigns and where you'll find freedom as we've been singing it. Grace doesn't just about exist. Grace reigns supreme. And you'll find mercy and forgiveness and grace to help in every time of need this week, whatever the week is that you're facing. But come. Come with confidence because of our great high priest. I don't know, maybe, maybe you've never really come to Jesus Christ as the Son of God in repentance and faith. Maybe there's someone even in this building or you're listening online and actually, although you've sort of got vague ideas or you know it all, you've never really come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith and known the wonderful experience of sins forgiven and acceptance before God. Well, here's a great opportunity this morning. Make a new start. It's the beginning of Lent. Come to Him. Come to the throne of grace. Or maybe, maybe you're more like me, maybe you've come many times. But this morning, you haven't had a great week. Maybe you've had a pretty bad month. Maybe this morning you're feeling hopeless. You've failed again. Maybe you, you know that your, your strength to follow Christ, your love is so weak, and you're thinking, oh, I can't possibly come again. I can't come and ask for forgiveness again. Well, I love some of the old hymns. I love the new ones as well. But there's a line in an old hymn which says this, all the fitness he requireth is that you feel your need of him. Isn't that wonderful? So come. Come again. Come to this throne where grace reigns because of our great high priest, because Jesus is the greatest. A modern hymn says this, nothing you can do could make him love you more. And nothing that you've done can make him close the door. Because of his great love, he gave his only son. And everything was done so you would come. There's no place to hide. But there's no ordinary priest. We have Jesus, the son of God. And he's no distant savior. He's come to understand us and he knows our, our pain, and he's here to help us day by day as we come to him, to the throne of grace.